Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 258 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by Mason Cummings, the digital content producer for the Wilderness Society, and Dr. Greg Applett, the senior science director for the Wilderness Society. The Wilderness Society is a nonprofit dedicated to the expansion and preservation of wilderness in the United States. In this week's episode, we discuss how photography and videography can be used to advance the missions of conservation and wilderness nonprofits and how photographers can play a leading role in conservation efforts. A special thank you to our listener, Joe Doherty, for recommending both Greg and Mason for this week's episode. Before we get started, I wanted to let listeners know about an exclusive offer made available only to you. We've partnered with Nature Photographers Network, the internet's premier landscape and nature photographers website, co-owned by two of my favorite photographers, David Kingham and Jennifer Renwick. NPN is offering podcast listeners a free 30-day trial to their platform, plus 20% off the first year of membership. It's a wonderful place to connect with other nature photographers without the messy algorithm of social media. As a member, you'll get access to incredible articles that will improve your photography, useful critique forums, and their Ask Me Anything discussions with top industry leaders, which are quite insightful. Just head over to naturephotographers.network forward slash f-stop or find a link in the show notes to get started with your free trial. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, awesome. We have Mason Cummings and Greg Applett from the Wilderness Society joining us today on the podcast for a fun little panel conversation. Thanks to our listener, Joe Doherty, for recommending this particular episode. And I'm really excited because I've been wanting to do something like this for quite a while. And so, and we've been playing back and forth. I've had to reschedule this thing like 20 times now. So I'm glad we could finally get this going. Do do you want to go ahead and uh, introduce yourself, uh, starting with Mason? Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Good to be on. My name is Mason Cummings. I live in Durango, Colorado. I am a photographer for the Wilderness Society. Essentially, I do all things photo video with the Wilderness Society. Uh, My personal artistic interests are mostly rooted in landscape photography, but you know, professionally, I kind of shoot it all. Um, and when it comes down to it, I just really like playing with cameras. So it, it's, I'm super fortunate to be able to do that as part of my job. And uh, I also do a lot of, um, I've sort of act as the organization's photo editor as well. So it's a nice fix of mix of field work and, um, you know, working with other photographers, which I also love to do. And, you know, I, I know Eric Bennett had recommended me for the podcast on episode like 35 or something like that. And what are we on now? Like 260. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I know we talked about it and I, I thought I had successfully dodged that request. Uh, but here we are a few <laughs> years later. Uh, and I know you reached out right. to Greg and I got pulled back then. But no, I'm, I'm super excited to be on and, and be chatting here with you guys. So thanks. Yeah, of course. And I would say for a lot of photographers listening, you probably have like the dream job because you're we, we went backpacking together in the San Juans and you're like, oh, yeah, I got to get this footage of this waterfall for work. You know, it's like, oh, that's not fair. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is a dream job. There's a very blurry line between what I do for fun and what I do for work often. And I'm, uh, you know, just right. super lucky to be able to say that. And I have to pinch myself every day. Yeah. Well, Greg, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm Greg Applett. I'm the senior science director at the Wilderness Society. I'm a 
based here in Denver. I've been with the organization for about 30 years. I'm a forest ecologist by training. Um, My work currently, uh, I supervise a, a small but very productive and talented group of scientists flung around the country from Anchorage to Oakland to Bozeman to Maine. I'll just say that uh, photographers are not the only ones who are jealous of Mason. Pretty much everyone at the Wilderness Society wishes that they had his job, including those of us who consider ourselves field ecologists, but spend most of our lives uh, chained to a desk. And uh, so, yeah, we we all uh, envy Mason's position in the organization. Right on. <laughs> and, and for what well, it's worth, Greg is modest. He the, he is a living legend. Um, so, you know, I, I I feel super honored to call him a colleague and appear with him on this podcast. And we do, we rarely get chances to work directly together. So thanks, Matt, for giving us the opportunity to you know join this chat together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is I think where the rubber hits the road when it comes to uh, to making a meaningful difference with our photography. So, um, but we'll we'll dive into that later. Maybe we can start with kind of a like a big overview, and I'd be curious to just hear you talk about what the top priorities are for the Wilderness Society. And maybe you could start by just quickly do an overview of what the Wilderness Society yeah. even is. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, we we are a national conservation organization that was founded in 1935 by a group of foresters, for the most part, but people who simply believed that. In the age of rapid expansion of the automobile and roads throughout the country, that it um, it made sense to try to keep keep roads from punching into the very last remnants of wild America. And they organized this organization called the Wilderness Society initially with five members, and then grew pretty quickly to become a a membership organization. Um, we were the group that was uh, most intimately involved in the passage of the Wilderness Act, including the writing of the act itself and the shopping around on Capitol Hill until its passage in 1964. Uh, after that, we were very involved for many years in pursuing additional wilderness. One of the great things about the Wilderness Act is that not only did it designate wilderness and create this thing called wilderness, but it established a process by which citizens could band together and advocate for more wilderness. And the system has now grown from its original 9 million acres to over 110 million acres. And we've been kind of involved in just about every single acre of the growth of that system. Um, Starting in the 1980s and 1990s with the application of a whole suite of new environmental laws that were passed in the late 60s and 70s, we got involved in in much more complicated work involving land management planning and um, um, shaping of national forest management plans and that kind of thing because of their influence on the public lands. And it was just a different way to protect wild places than, than wilderness bills were. But of late, we have come to the reali- realization that sort of piecemeal protection of acres is good as far as it goes, but it's not getting the job done in terms of saving the things that we care most about. 
And so we have recently kind of reorganized our, our organization around mitigating climate change, adapting the natural world to inevitable change in the climate, and also addressing, you know, a, a long history of kind of overlooking marginalized people in the United States who have not been, not had the power to participate in those decisions and making sure that we involve people, not just in the ability to access the public lands, but um, also their ability to, to participate in the process of influencing what happens in those places. So that those, those three areas of kind of climate mitigation, biodiversity conservation, and and equitable access and participation in public land decision-making really frame up our organization right now. Yeah, and this may not be obvious for some of our listeners. I would think most of them, but not perhaps not all. I think at the heart of wilderness designation and protection is the importance of wilderness. and But also, I think at the core of the resistance to that is kind of this never-ending argument of economic uh, displacement of, you know, people in rural, rural communities who are losing, you know, they're afraid they're going to lose their livelihoods and, you know, some cases in Oregon and things like that where forestry has been, you know, dialed back, people have lost their livelihoods. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's where there's a lot of debate around wilderness. And I think maybe, you know, we don't have to spend like two hours asking Topic, talking about this, but I would really love for you to just kind of briefly talk about the importance of wilderness in today's environment. Yeah, well, um, we um, we have believed for a long time, as I said, that um, that wild places are essential to the human experience, and that we we want to do everything we can to keep from losing them. Um, they're important not just for what they do for us and for our mental health and well-being, but also protected areas. Places like wilderness and national parks have been shown to be essential to the project of, of protecting nature, protecting species from extinction. And obviously there are the additional um, tangible benefits of things like clean water, um, clean air that go along with, um, with protected areas. Um, but we also recognize that they're as, as essential as they are, they're not sufficient to the project of saving the planet, saving nature. Even, even those uh, largest protected areas have now been shown not to be independent and, and need to be connected to lands outside and even to you know, the, the Yellowstone to Yukon initiative is based on the notion that even a place as large as the greater Yellowstone ecosystem still needs to be connected to source populations to the north in order to sustain its, its uh, wildlife into the future. So we have really organized around the idea of protecting, of, of establishment of protected areas but as a component of a much more comprehensive land management solution that involves restoration of degraded areas and incorporation of working lands into a functional landscape composed of, of multiple ownerships with all, all owners uh, working together on this common project of, of conserving the ecosystem in which they live. Awesome. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's super important and 
I'm always beating the drum of wilderness preservation. And I understand also that with biodiversity and all of that, like with climate change, we need as much biodiversity as possible because we're going to run out of oxygen, literally. So, uh, you know, we'll no see. big deal. It's, it's fine. We're, we'll be fine. You know. Uh, okay, well, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, unless, Mason, you had anything you wanted to add to that? Um, no, I mean, or Greg pretty much covered it. Like you said, we're facing an unprecedented extinction crisis, Matt. Um, no big deal. So <laughs> definitely something that warrants addressing. And a just transition is an important part of that because people's livelihoods do depend on extractive industries. And we need to figure out a way to uh, help them um, adapt to a changing economy and a sustainable economy. Perfect. All right, well, let's talk about um, how the Wilderness Society utilizes photography and videography to forward its mission. And I'm going to guess Mason's going to kick us off with that one. Yeah, I mean, it's photos and video are essential to really everything we do. Um, how can you get people to care about a place without actually showing it to them? Um, so, you know, we there's not a single type of image or video that is like the golden ticket to, to advancing conservation goals. I think it takes a, a super broad mix of just everything from, you know, fine art photography to more conservation focused photojournalism to human focused storytelling. Um, that's among the most important, I would say, is it's tell a story from a person's perspective in order to get your audience to see themselves in that story, to see themselves uh, impacted by the effects of a change in climate. Um, so, you know, we do that in longer form films, uh, but we also do a lot of kind of short form videos that are more geared towards social media and things like that. Um, so it's really anything and everything that can work to sort of advance the conversation um, is all a super important part of it. Yeah, I mean, lots of storytelling, and I love what you said about having people being able to put themselves into that place or that situation. I think that's critical, and I think oftentimes that's challenging to do in landscape photography, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's why oftentimes that human element is an important part of that. Like, we do need just straight up landscape photography to show people places and to, and it, it does really help establish an emotional connection with a place for, especially for people who have never been there or people who have been there too, it might enhance that emotional connection. Uh, but I think the most effective way to tell those stories in a people in a way that people can relate to them is um, showing people, and then you can you can actually see the people in the photos or videos, and uh, the viewers can imagine themselves in the subject's shoes and and imagine themselves in part of that story, and then the impacts of climate change become real, and then the you know hopefully in turn feel like they need to take action and do something about it. I'd be curious to hear your perspective on this as well, Greg. I'm wondering, you know, like when you're working on a, a project or, you know, trying to tell a story, like what does that collaboration with Mason look like in terms of, hey, what we really need is X, Y, and Z, or or is Mason just the man and doesn't he need any direction at all? <laughs> Mason needs all kinds of Go direction. <laughs> well, it's funny you, you're asking me that question because as a scientist, I often say that our, our work 
the work of the scientists at the Wilderness Society goes on so far upstream of the results of our advocacy work in the organization that Mason and I actually don't have much of an opportunity to work together um, because I, 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 Mason is a high profile individual at the Wilderness Society because his work is viewed by so many people and it's so impressive. I would love, though, to 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 work more with Mason because of the advantages that that photography can can convey to scientific work. You know, for example, I, I work a lot on conservation of old growth forests. It's a big uh, concern of ours right now at the Wilderness Society. It has been for a long time, but has sort of uh, taken on renewed profile. Uh, because of the importance of old growth forests, not just to biodiversity conservation, which has been understood for a while, but also to the conservation of, of fixed carbon, to you know, the prevention of loss of CO2 to the atmosphere in these big old forests. And, you know, I, but lately we've been challenged to describe what old growth forests are, what they look like. And, you know, scientists have produced these lengthy descriptions that involve numbers of large diameter trees and density of snags and amounts of coarse woody debris on the forest <laughs> floor. And all of it is just so dry and means nothing to, to most people. And yet there's nothing like a picture of an old growth forest to convey not just the complexity of the forest, but the feel of it that has made it such a cherished part of our, of our um, conservation world. And, um, and, you know, I'm just, I'm working on a paper right now. It'd be really nice to involve some of Mason's photos of old growth forests. Cause I, I think it's a you know, stale cliche, but it is still true that a picture paints a thousand words. And as you know, yeah, Matt, old growth forests and forest yeah, interior shots are among the hardest thing to possibly shoot as a photographer because there's just so much going on. And I know most of your listeners know that too. Um, and, you know, one other effective storytelling technique along the lines of old, old growth forests that we uh, supported last year was a film called Understory um, that was produced by a filmmaker named Colin Arisman. So that really showed kind of the human element and um, some folks kind of took a, a boat trip around um, an island in the Tongass and, and it showed their experience in that forest. And again, I think just kind of illustrating a human experience and that human connection to a landscape is a really effective way to tell those stories. Um, because as we all know, you know, shooting a still photo of an interior forest is very challenging, um, but it is, is obviously, as Greg said, um, also quite useful. Yeah, I went to the Redwoods for the first time last summer and I was in the Humboldt section and it was interesting because on one side of the road, they had protected it much, much earlier. And on the other side of the road, it was like probably 20, 30, 40 years later or maybe even longer, but you could visually see the difference. I mean, it was like, okay, these trees are much smaller <laughs> and these ones are massive, but through mm -hmm. photography, as you were describing Mason, it's it's really hard to convey that scale, especially in forests, just because of the sheer scale of those trees. It's it's a masterclass in composition and 
um, storytelling for sure. But um, yeah, I think to your to your point, including the human element and the storytelling piece, I think can help convey that because you'll be able to see people's reactions like, oh my gosh, look at this tree, you know, it's right. the most amazing thing I've ever seen. So yeah. I think that's a good point. And yeah, Greg, like you said, I think that's why scientists get such a bad rap right now is people can't connect to the language. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so I had a, uh, I had the pleasure of joining Mason on a fun backpacking trip a couple of years ago and uh, he was creating some images and videos for one of your projects while we were camping at a high elevation. When you're partnering with photographers, uh, what types of images do you seek out and what qualities do they have? Uh, again, it's really kind of everything. Um, you know, we, we do need those straight up landscape photos that show the place and really convey its majesty and its scale and of course, I'm always looking for the best quality photos in that sort of arena that I can possibly find. Um, but, you know, we also need the smaller shots of details and, and abstracts and things like that, that kind of, uh, you know, I, I feel like a lot of those shots kind of bring people into the photo a little bit more like that little extra sense of wonder um, and sort of helps establish that emotional connection too. Uh, but, you know, we also need cell phone videos for social media. You know, we're starting up TikTok pretty soon and Instagram reels and stuff like that. So <laughs> it's it's the whole gamut from, you know, awesome fine art landscapes to cell phone, selfie style uh, sort of stories of people in the landscapes. Um, so really all of it, you know, there's, there's not, again, one single type of image that is the best at advancing our conservation gains. Uh, it takes just a, a, a wide array of all types of images to bring people in on, on different channels too. You know, um, you can have print displays or uh, printed publications and then, you know, social media channels and then videos and films and film festivals. So just it, it takes a combination of all of it to really advance the conversation. Nice. Yeah. Little known fact about me. When I first got into photography, I was also on the board of directors for a small nonprofit in Colorado Springs called uh, Rocky Mountain Field Institute. And they were doing a ton of um, burn scar efforts on the Waldo Canyon fire. Um, and what I was trying to do with that is kind of show some before and after, but also, um, showing like the story of the regrowth of, of the, of the forest and of the environment. I'd be curious, Greg, from your perspective, like what are the types of images that you think would help tell the story from a scientific perspective? Well, I think that the most powerful form is what you just mentioned, the before and after photos. Um, you know, I, I'm. Everybody in Colorado has seen the, the William Henry Jackson, John Fielder, Colorado, 1870 to 2000 coffee table book. Um, I mean, that made a huge splash uh, just because people were kind of stunned by the amount of change that, that had taken place. And I was taking a look at that book recently and saw that there was a uh, – Closed with an essay by Roderick Nash, who's a professor of wilderness history at UC Santa Barbara, and he he wrote about how um, photographers have a special opportunity for advocacy. I think is the way he phrased it, where he, 
because they're able to capture history with the click of a button. Um, and then that history then becomes, can be compared to current conditions and we can witness firsthand the change. Um, it's especially powerful. Um, in my own field recently, uh, have you guys heard of the Osborne panoramas? Does that mean anything to you? Okay. Well, back in the 1930s, there was this guy who worked for the Forest Service in an influential position up in Region 6 in Oregon and Washington. He developed a, a panoramic camera and then made several copies of it um, and then employed his staff in taking 360-degree panoramas, actually three 120-degree panoramas, uh, from every fire lookout in Oregon and Washington <laughs> and, and just to document what it looked like. The idea was to try to make uh, communication between fire lookouts more effective, but the pictures went into the national archives and just sat there for like 80 years until a friend of mine who's a, a scientist with the forest service in Wenatchee, Washington learned of them and, commissioned a friend of his who's a landscape photographer named John Marshall to go scan those photos. And then they drug came up with some money and he went out and took pictures in the last 10, 15 years of, you know, current, the current view from the same places. And those comparison photos are now driving uh, increased understanding of change in forest conditions in the Northwest that are showing how the forest has densified and how those denser forests are now more susceptible to wildfire. And they've become really important part of the story of how we need to adapt our forest management practices to address the effects of historical fire exclusion, as well as the likely impacts of climate change in the future. And, you know, if, if he hadn't just done that for whatever reason back then, we would not have that resource to compare with current the current day. And, and it just makes for an incredibly powerful uh, uh, illustration of change and, and a case for, for changing our own ways and proving our own approach to conservation. Yeah, I love you said that. I mean, one of the things I love about being in the, in the wilderness as a photographer is trying to ask and or answer like why you know like i see i find something i'm like why did that happen what what caused that and a lot of times what i've found is it's man made or man caused you know it's like oh somebody clear cut this forest this pine forest and then all these aspen trees grew in its place and that's why there's all these tiny aspen trees all clustered super close together um, in the middle of a huge pine forest, you know, yep. it's like, I think that's one of the things that photography, especially landscape photography can really do is help ask and answer questions. Absolutely. Have you also found that in your work, Mason? Yeah, um, definitely. And those before and after type images are a super effective way of doing that. Um, but yeah, I mean, nature is very complicated. And I feel like photography is a way of sort of shedding light on the processes and, and intricacies of it. So it's, yeah, super important. Awesome. Cool. Well, I wanted to dive into some more controversial territory. 
because uh, this has come up on the podcast a few times in the past, but I've never been able to actually preface it with people who do conservation work for a living. So I'm really curious to hear your perspective on it. So in regards to the more kind of artistic and emotive work that typically dominates landscape and nature photography today, uh, how can that style fit in with conservation efforts? Yeah, I mean, I think it really all has its place. You know, if you're marketing yourself as a conservation photographer who's documenting the impacts of climate change, you should hold yourself to the same ethical standards as any news publication. Um, and, you know, like the, the International League of Conservation Photographers, for example, holds themselves and their photographers to a pretty strict sense of uh, standards of authenticity, just like any photojournalist would. Uh, but that's not to say that like the more embellished types of photography don't have their place too. It's just like any other type of art, like music, theater, film, whatever. Like it, 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 they're all important mediums to get people to take action on climate change. And they still have an emotional impact that ultimately leads to conservation gains. Um, so, as, you know, if you're if you're marketing yourself as a journalist, like truly documenting change, you should hold yourself to a certain set of standards. But if you're an artist, like art has no rules. And I know Aaron Bobnick and Alex Nail have had a very robust discussion on this on your podcast. And, you know, if you want to get into it, I would suggest your listeners listen to that. But, you know, the bottom line is we're, we're in a global emergency here. And should we really be spending our time arguing about where to draw the line on your post-processing techniques? Uh, or should we all just be doing our art and being a part of the conversation to advance conservation gains that we urgently need? Um, and then, you know, to close that out, like regardless of your stance on processing, we should all obviously hold ourselves to a set of standards um, with the way we interact with the land and our subjects, um, just like those promoted by Nature First and organizations like ILCP and Leave No Trace and stuff like that. Can't disagree with any of that. <laughs> Do you have anything you'd add to that, Craig? No, I, I, I'm not familiar with the... Um the post-processing uh, techniques that you're familiar that you're discussing uh, my uh, my familiarity with photography kind of dates back to, you know, the black and white dark room that my dad and I set up in the bathroom uh, when I was a kid. Uh, sure. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I, you know, I know a little about burning and dodging and that's about it. Well, even that's, you know, manipulating your photos. And Ansel Adams famously said, you know, your your negative is your score and your print is your performance. And at what point does that manipulation become unacceptable? Like you can manipulate a photo in camera too. You can exaggerate scale with a telephoto lens. You can exaggerate time with a long exposure. So it's, it's kind of a, a silly argument, I feel like, just like deciding where to draw that line. Just be, you know, if you're, if you're, Projecting yourself as a, a journalist who's documenting something, be honest about what you're doing. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's all art. And the if your intent with your art is to convey a message and establish an, an emotional response from people to get them to take a certain action, then so be it. Great. That's awesome. Yeah, I love what you said, because I think, you know, I've heard a lot of I mean, I think Mason and most of the listeners know where I stand on some of this stuff, but I've heard a lot of people that are like-minded to myself in terms of being kind of vocally against, um, you know, extreme manipulation in landscape photography. They've People say things like that it can, it can actually cause harm to conservation efforts because people have a distorted 
view of reality and like everything in nature is beautiful. And <laughs> like, if you're getting rid of all the things that are ugly and things like that, uh, that could hurt conservation efforts. But I think on the flip side of that, like you're saying, Mason, if it's getting people excited about the outdoors and wanting to go visit these places and like see them for themselves and be mystified by their beauty and want to protect them, I don't think that's a bad thing either. So I don't think it's uh, I think it's both in my opinion, but right. Yeah, uh, totally. Do you have anything you want to add to that? <laughs> well, as long no. as they aren't disappointed when they get there, which happens like, especially, you know, people warp a peak to make it twice as tall as it is. And they show up to that location and just be like, well, that's just a little hill. It's like, I feel duped. Um, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to mislead people, but at the same time, like if the purpose of your art is to, to convey a message and to, to elicit a response from people, then you do what you need to do. Cool. All right. This, this question is probably more aimed at, at uh, Greg first, but I'm curious what benefits are there in approaching our photography practices from the perspective of a scientist or a conservationist? And obviously either one of you can take the question first. Well, as a scientist, I mean, I, I think they, um, the, the ability to document visually, as I was saying uh, about old growth forests, you know, there, there are just certain things that can only be conveyed through visual stimuli that uh, I can't replace with, you know, my methods section in my paper. Um, a great example, uh, we're spending a lot of time at the Wilderness Society worrying about landscape connectivity. You know, making sure that that functional connectivity, the ability for species to to move around on the landscape, either seasonally or in response to climate change, is, remains intact. And it's a pretty abstract concept. I mean, we can we can make maps and we can model those connections in geographic information systems and. Um, but there's there's nothing like a photograph to convey the scale that we're talking about and the 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 patch na patchwork nature of the landscape and the con connectivities that exist among habitats and frankly the disruptions to them you know some of the most effective photographs of in conservation have been pictures of wildlife that have been stranded by obstructions and breaks in connectivity. And um, I think that that is, you know, something that is really best conveyed by a, a documentary or documentation uh, photographic evidence that, uh, that doesn't come, as well, come across as well in words. Yeah. And I might kind of just <clears throat> reframe the question for Mason. Um, thinking uh, in terms of for us as photographers, what benefits are there in approaching our photography from the perspective of a scientist or conservationist? Um, well, I mean, I think there's, there's huge benefits to it. I mean, there, I think that's an ongoing challenge in, in conservation and, and science in general is, is communicating that science. And, you know, in, in my position now and in previous jobs and positions I've had before, there's often sort of a disconnect between the science that's happened and the communication that's going out to the general public and, and how that science is conveyed to people in a way that they can understand it. 
Um, and photography obviously plays a, a really important role in that. And, you know, to what we were just talking about, that's obviously a more of a documentational photojournalism role often. Um, you know, there are exceptions to that. Uh, but, you know, it, it provides a way of showing an audience the processes and things that science is analyzing. Um, and without that, there's it, it's hard to kind of communicate super complex processes to to audiences who might not be initiated to to those sorts of themes. Maybe taking it a step further, in what ways has that approach to your photography made you a better photographer? Hmm. Good question. It it gives me some like a, a sort of steers my perspective as a photographer in a way. Instead of just kind of going out willy-nilly pointing my camera at whatever I want, I know there's a story that needs to be told. And it it sort of shifts the way I look at things and and really makes me focus on how to tell that story in an effective way that'll resonate with people and that people will understand. So it, it makes me approach photography in a more calculated way, I would say, and in a way that I wouldn't say like creatively restrictive necessarily. I mean, I feel like a lot of creative things come out of that little bit of direction that you get when you have a project and uh, you have a story that you want to tell. Uh, I think a lot of creative creativity can spur from that. Um, but it, it, it makes me approach photography with uh, more intentionality and um, kind of a clearer vision of the outcomes of what I want to achieve, which can have drawbacks and benefits. You know, I know a lot of people like to go out with zero expectations and they don't know what they want to achieve. They just want to go out and explore. And, and I know a lot of people who make their best images taking that approach. Uh, whereas for me, I spend a ton of time, uh, you know, planning my shoots, planning exactly what I want to get out of them based on the story I want to tell. And I do a lot of what I call like digital scouting on Google earth. If I've never been to a place before and, um, you know, the tools that we have at our disposal to plan these shoots are incredible. So, you know, and, and that's not to say I'm not open to, you know, seeing new things along the way, having this sort of prescriptive approach to what I'm trying to shoot. But uh, I do think having that sort of mindset of, you know, knowing what the story I want to tell and doing all the legwork in advance to tell that story really helps when I actually go out and shoot uh, and helps kind of steer my vision um, when I am behind a camera. Brilliant. That's exactly the answer I was looking for, Mason. Do <laughs> you think you notice notice things as a result of working for a conservation organization that you didn't notice before? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I it's just I've gotten much more into just ecology in general uh, since working for a conservation organization. I think that's sort of a natural part of it, and I think that sort of lends you to be. A, more receptive to the things around you and more curious about the things around you and subsequently notice a lot more things. Yeah, that that's certainly true for me. I, um, I, I rarely go out with intentionality like you do in when I go out with a camera, but I certainly notice things that other people don't as a result of, of my experience and as a result of the things that I work on here at the Wilderness Societies. Yeah, I mean, photography is a really great way to sort of 
explore those things and and get you to notice more things because you really do stop and and look at things from different angles and, and and things like that instead of just kind of breeze by them when you're going out on a hike so i think photography is a great tool um to allow you to notice those things regardless of whether you're into conservation or not just to kind of explore the natural world yeah i don't think you have to be a scientist or an ecologist uh, or work for a conservation organization to to have that mindset and to have those benefits in your photography, I think really it comes down to curiosity and wanting to understand the natural world. And just it, I've, in my own experience, it really helps me see the world in a different way. It's not just about making a pretty photograph, although obviously that's often what you hope for. Sometimes if you're just seeking out satiation of your curiosity, the pretty photograph will follow. Yeah. So what are some tangible ways that photographers can get involved through their work to make the world a better place through their images? Uh, honestly, first and foremost, donate your images. And I know, you know, uh, and I say that as a photographer who totally understands the fact that people need to make a living and make money. Uh, but as a photo or editor for an organization like the Wilderness Society, I often tell people that image donations from my perspective, can be even more valuable than financial donations because, you know, financial donations can kind of go to anything, but we have a never ending need for images. You know, sure, larger organizations like TWS and others do have budgets for images, and I do like to see people compensated as much as possible, uh, but that budget will never meet the amount of images that we really need. And, you know, even if it's not to like bigger organizations like us, I, it, image donations to, to smaller nonprofits um, and more local nonprofits who don't have licensing budgets, that is huge. It goes such a long way to, to folks. Um, so, I mean, I would say that's kind of first and foremost. And, you know, you, you don't have to donate your whole portfolio. Like I've had folks just donate like one or two images and, you know, I should give Benj Wadsworth a huge shout out because he did donate his whole, whole portfolio to us. And it's like hundreds and hundreds of just awesome images. And we've got tons of mileage out of them. Uh, and, you know, Jack Brower has also donated a, a couple of great collections to support some of our campaigns. And I just I, I can't overemphasize how helpful that is to us. Um, and even just kind of discounted images, uh, you know, Nonprofits do operate on a, a limited budget, even the bigger ones with a budget. Uh, so small discounts and anything you can do to kind of share your images and get them out there in the conservation space is super helpful. And I should follow up by saying that, you know, image donations are tax deductible, just like any other donation. Uh, and we can write you a uh, letter of acknowledgement that you can use on your tax returns. But aside from that, just be a part of the conversation. You know, I know a lot of photographers who, uh, you know, contribute to our work, but also on their own channels, uh, they they keep a conservation message in their in their posts when they post an images, and they have a conservation focus sort of in their general portfolio. And I think just being a part of that conversation is also super important on an individual level, regardless of whether or not you're contributing to different conservation organizations. Just uh, you have a platform, you have a medium, use it, um, to advance, you know, the things that we need to do. Cause I love that. One of the things that I've always wanted to do is find an organization and 
find out what their needs are and like do like a little project for them. You know, like I was thinking, you know, here close to where we live, Mason, I know you guys are helping with that San Juan wilderness area expansion. Mm -hmm. And of course, like that's my, like I love the San Juan. So Mm -hmm. I wonder, do you think photographers would have any success in approaching some of these smaller nonprofits and like, do you think it's uh, like pitching an idea or is it more about, Hey, what are your needs for images? Or I, I want to work with you on a project. Like, what do you think the best approach would be for photographers to take? Um, that's a good question. You know, uh, I think starting out by sort of asking what your needs are and even if it's just like one photo, if you come to an organization and say like, I'd like to donate this photo that I think might be helpful for you, that's, that's an awesome. And, um, I have a lot of people reach out to me who are, you know, essentially looking for gigs or looking for work, which is fine and totally understandable. But it's honestly not the sort of best approach to to get involved. Um, I I would say, like you said, Matt, you know, asking what their needs are and 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 listening and and being flexible with your own sort of artistic vision to adapt it to those needs uh, is really important. And, um, you know, keeping tabs on the work that's being done in those areas and sort of that'll give you yourself just kind of a general sense of those needs. And if you're out hiking in, in a place, you can take some photos and, and think, OK, this might go to advancing that bill. And that sort of might change your approach while you're out in the field a little bit of what images might be useful to a certain conservation organization versus your own artistic vision. So just kind of being open to those things and keeping a tab on, you know, the initiatives that are important to you and keeping an open line of communication with organizations who are working on those and just being flexible and Will and, and patient, honestly, because in, in the nonprofit world and just like everywhere else, things move slow. So you might reach out to somebody and not get an immediate response or not get an immediate assignment or say like, oh, we have this need right away. And like you're often not going to just hit the ground running when you connect with an organization. Uh, it takes time to build that relationship and get a sense of their needs and get a sense of what you can do to, to best contribute. Um, so just keeping a kind of consistent line of communication open and being receptive to kind of their budgets and their needs. Yeah, how you can support that is, I think, the, the best way to go about that. Well, I'll just go on record, Mason. If you ever need any of my stuff, let me know. Happy to give it to you. <laughs> Thanks, man. Appreciate that. And I will follow up with you about that. Sweet. I would I'd add to that um, simply um, bearing witness. You know, um, not all not all photographs need to be beautiful to be effective. And yeah. if you come across ecological damage, something that troubles you, um, often you know we are we may be engaged in trying to uh, address the damage, but we may not have the the people, the horsepower to get out into the field and observe it firsthand. And we often depend on people for firsthand documentation and witnessing um, in our, in our legal um, efforts to, to try to try to prevent further damage. And so images of, of ecological damage can be very helpful as well. Yeah. Thinking relevant to close to home here in Colorado, one of the things I'm constantly aware of is the 
the beetle kill, you know, the trees, the trees just being super impacted by the, the beetle infestation. And I think there's some ecological debate as to like what the root causes of that are, but I'm pretty sure it's climate re- related. <laughs> climate change is, isn't helping, but there, are, yeah, there, are, it's a complex issue that uh, right. <laughs> we could go on about. Yeah. Right. Right. But, yeah. I mean, that's interesting to think about because I feel like as photographers, especially around here in the San Juans, like my sort of photographer brain and the who wants to capture just these majestic mountains and grand scenes often tries to omit the beetle kill in the scene. And I'll try to find a perspective that doesn't contain that beetle kill. Uh, but now when I've gone out in the past few years, I've started to kind of make a conscious effort to try to like find compositions or, or or find scenes that that actually tell that story too because it is a part of the landscape and it is happening and we can't just ignore it and omit it from our photographs um so i think it's important to kind of include that as part of you know what we're trying to convey yeah and along those lines i've i think most photographers are inclined including myself to like you know oh there's a man-made object in my photo i'm going to get rid of that with the uh the old clone stamp tool or whatever. So it's, um, I think sometimes it's important to leave some of that stuff in for context. And then if you really study the forest, then you come to see all those dead trees as something beautiful. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I'm slowly getting there, but I have a long way to go. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're used to seeing them lush and green and then you come back like 10 years later and all your favorite trees are dead, it's, it can really hit hard, you know? Yeah, especially when it's the yeah. landscape that like that cool. you first fell in love with and that got you into nature and that it was you know core to your being and then you come back and see it just everything's dead. It is pretty depressing, but it's important to take a step back and look at those bigger ecological processes and think about these things on a geological time scale. I also found that helps. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, well, maybe, Greg, this is a good question for you to kick us off on. Some of my friends are, are very staunch wilderness activists. They often get frustrated with you know larger conservation organizations like, like the Wilderness Society uh, for what I guess the best coin term I could use is you know political negotiation. <laughs> I know that changing law is like making sausage, so I'm curious from your perspective, what are the pragmatic facts about working in this field to create meaningful change? Yeah, I, you know, I understand that um, the frustration that people have with with compromise, and they feel like they're giving something away. Um, but the process, the political process that we developed in this country, is one that has always called for compromise to to make progress, and. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that the the Wilderness Act. I think the most important thing about the Wilderness Act was this process that it set up for citizen involvement in in the designation of more wilderness, and that's an you know inherently a political process that requires some kind of compromise. Very often, wilderness bills are and ha- certainly have been historically been popular enough that um, that people on both sides of the aisle have rallied around them. Um, and it's, we haven't had to engage in that, in, in that um, kind of compromise that leaves people frustrated. But the fact is that, that that process has resulted in, you know, over a hundred million acres of, of 
designated wilderness that is as 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 permanent as our political process allows <laughs> and uh and and represents real progress and so it may not while it may not be all that we want um it we we have it it represents an, an, an huge accomplishment and um permanent record of success for the people who have engaged in that. Um, I would say that based on my experience, that there isn't anything inherently inherent in national organizations that makes them more prone to compromise. Um, In fact, there are times when we have taken a harder line position than local organizations um, because we're interested, we're, we have a stake in protecting a larger policy than, than we have in a particular place. For instance, currently, um, there's a, a regulation that was secured at the end of the Clinton administration called the roadless rule that resulted in, in the, that's resulted in 20 years of protection from, from roading for the last rem- remaining roadless portions of the national forest. And often people who are trying to secure some additional protection in, in one smaller landscape are look at roadless areas as trade bait for additional designation of wilderness, but, and they're willing to, to give them away. And we're, our interest is in making sure that the roadless rule remains intact and is not weakened over time. So, um, while yes, we engage in the political process and often do make compromises, it's, it, it's not inherent in who we are. Yeah, and I think to your earlier point, I think it's important uh, to think of it more as a tool for citizen engagement and understanding what people's resistance to additional wilderness protections might be and try to figure out you know what we have in common philosophically and and then I think it's actually an opportunity to, to, if you want to look at it from that view, it's, you know, it's instead of just forcing something on people you don't like, maybe try to sit down and understand what they don't like about what you're trying to do, you know, and oftentimes compromise is what comes out of that. Well said. Well, I just think, and I know Matt, you and I have sort of chatted a little bit about this before, and I, I feel like oftentimes... Um, folks have a tendency to kind of oversimplify the complex cultural and economic variables at play. And, you know, there are broader systemic issues that need to be considered in all of this. And when folks take that sort of absolutist stance, these things get misrepresented and green groups, uh, they misrepresent the things that green groups ultimately seek to accomplish. Um, And I just, I don't know, I think it's important to remember that we're all on the same team here. And I support constructively criticizing the flaws of the movement. And let's be honest, there are many. Uh, but it seems counterproductive to tear down groups who are best positioned to, to create meaningful change. Agreed. Yeah. All right. I would love, Mason, probably a good question for you, but can you think of any common practices in landscape and nature photography that are detrimental to the preservation and conservation of the places we love to photograph? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there are, there are many. Um, I think one worth highlighting is probably geotagging. <laughs> and I might get a little in a little bit of trouble for highlighting this, but uh, 
you know, a, a lot of people see the anti-geotagging movement as elitist or gatekeeping. You know, the the land management land management agencies don't necessarily have the resources to deal with vast influxes of people coming into places that were recently geotagged by influencers. You know, I, there's a, a road out near Ridgeway that's a good example. That's a, a, a county road that goes through private land and uh, just a beautiful view of the Sneffels Range that has just become insanely popular over the years. And there's not an official pullout. There's no facilities to accommodate people. So people literally just stop in the middle of the road and and get out and take pictures. And it's right around kind of a dangerous curve. And it's and then they're trespassing out of the private land on either side of it. And I've even seen workshops go out there. Um, so, you know, these things have a, a huge impact on the, the actual landscape itself when the management agencies don't have the resources to keep up and manage that impact. Um, so I think we need to be careful about how we sort of share locations. And, you know, I think it's important to, to obviously get people outside and address inequities and access to outside, getting outside. Uh, so we don't want to shut anybody out of that, but we also need to be mindful about how we advertise the, the places that we're going and, the impacts that that sort of advertisement can have on those places without adequate resources to, to manage those impacts. Well said. Yeah, I think you touched on all the ones, the main ones that I would probably throw out there. And I think, you know, oftentimes I think that also gives photographers a bad name, like, oh, you're all about nature, but you're going to go do that, you know, and it's, it, and let's be honest, it's a very complicated conversation about people trying to make ends meet and, you know, put food on the table for their families and all that, too. So it's not all just it's not black and white for sure. But I think I think the key is to be thoughtful. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Take a look at the Nature First website. Follow those yeah. principles. So can can just anyone get involved in using their photography to advance some of your goals at the Wilderness Society? Or is there a process through which photographers are vetted? Or um, like you had said, I would, you would love people to donate images, but I have no idea what projects you're working on necessarily that you would want images for. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, short answer, yeah, anybody can get involved. Um, and as far as sort of donating your images, we will, we'll take it all, <laughs> uh, you know, some of it will be applicable projects, but we still just need pretty photos of landscapes to include in all kinds of stuff. Uh, but we do have several different kind of processes and programs in place to engage with different photographers. Uh, the first of which is a, a little photo mini grant program that we just launched last year. Uh, which is a way of sort of engaging with photographers who can tell stories on a local level that reflect communities that they're a part of. So they might tell those stories in a more authentic way than I could if I just show up with my camera to a place I've never been for a week and then leave and then try to make a video or a photo essay out of it. Um, you know, these people live in these communities and they're connected to these landscapes. So we try to kind of engage with folks in that way. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll put out an RFP probably towards the end of the year for more grant proposals. And I encourage people to kind of keep an eye out for that because we're always looking for new photographers and new contributors. Um, and then beyond the grant program, you know, 
so well taking a step back so the grant program we do kind of the the idea of that is to tell allow people to tell their own stories and create their own visual visuals in in a way that meets their vision so we're less prescriptive with those types of projects uh Whereas on the other side, we do a lot of uh, just kind of general contracting with photographers who are usually kind of already a part of our network. And in those cases, we'll reach out to people and say, this is the project we're doing. These are the, the sort of deliverables we need and the types of images we need. And we can sort of steer the end product much more. Um, and then, you know, we do a lot of just licensing of existing photos that people have already taken. Um, so if you kind of keep tabs on sort of the places we're working and things like that, and you know, folks would never hesitate to reach out and, and say, you know, I've got this collection of images from this place. I may not want to donate them, but I have them just so you know, uh, and there's a good chance you'll hear from me months down the road and say, Hey, can we license a couple of these images for use X, Y, and Z? So, you know, when I, when I first started, like we were, we leaned pretty heavily on, on stock imagery and things like that. And I've really pushed hard to get us away from that. Um, not only to support individual hardworking photographers instead of giant faceless uh, stock agencies. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to establish a network of contributors that, you know, see, see contributing to the Wilderness Society as like a point of accolade that they want to put on their website, that they want to tell other people about. And the more we steer away from stock imagery and, and use images from well-respected photographers, other photographers will see that. They'll see credit lines and be like, oh, this photo was taken by, you know, my favorite photographer. Maybe I should try to figure out a way to contribute to the Wilderness Society. So, you know, building that network of people who generally genuinely want to contribute to the cause and, and be sort of a part of that community. Um, so there are all kinds of ways to kind of get involved in doing that. But I'd say, you know, the easiest is just reach out to me. Never, none of your listeners, listeners should ever hesitate to just shoot me an email and say, I'm interested in contributing at some point in some capacity, uh, just get on my radar and say, you know, this is the type of things you're interested in and this is how I might like to contribute at some point. And, you know, we might not hit the ground running right away, but it's just a constant effort of just slowly building that network. So I'll, I'll put your email in the show notes if you're cool with that. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> well, on the flip side of that, Greg, you know, from my personal experience, having more interest in the scientific processes at play in the landscapes that I visit has really helped me um, become a better photographer. Um, I just see things differently. And I'm curious if there's a opportunity there for photographers to kind of, you know, do field work or like really just um, engage with the scientists at the Wilderness Society in terms of, you know, learning from you and helping them see the world in perhaps a different way. Well, as I as I alluded earlier, uh, Mason's pretty much the only one who gets to do field work in the whole organization. <laughs> <laughs> and since COVID times, uh, not not even so much. <laughs> but uh, you know, in in the same way that that Mason described the need for imagery, which he has a, a vastly greater need for it than I do, but uh, yeah, um, try 
we would welcome um, contributions from photographers that can help us tell the scientific stories that we're that we're telling. And um, I would also encourage list, any listener to reach out to me just to understand better um, some of the research work that we're doing. Um, as I, I mentioned, um, we often don't, the, the scientists often don't show up as a very high profile part of the storytelling process on, for instance, our website, but we're always working on something. And, um, you know, I mentioned this old growth work that we're doing now, landscape connectivity work, um, just documentation of special qualities of roadless areas is always helpful to us. So, um, yeah, I would, I would, uh, encourage anyone who is interested to, to reach out for, to, to uh, learn about whatever opportunities there may be to engage, to, to support our scientific work as well. Awesome. All right. Well, last question I have, and I'll let you guys fight over who wants to take it first, but uh, how can photographic art and science work together to create change or lasting impact on the issues that are of importance to us. Want to tackle that one, Greg? I I mean, to me, they just, they go together so well that, um, but in, in ways that I think we don't really take enough advantage of, you know, I, I subscribed to a, to a magazine back in the eighties called the sciences that was produced by the New York Academy of science. And it was, some really insightful scientific writing, but they made a point of illustrating the magazine, not with any kind of like of, um, documentary type evidence or graphs or tables. They just used beautiful artwork. And I remember just feeling so maybe it was just cause I'm egghead scientist, but it was just such a, great aesthetic experience to combine scientific writing and, and, uh, and art. And, and also, you know, as, as a scientist, I've always appreciated just the, the hardcore documentary evidence, like, you know, scientific illustration. And, um, and I think that can be extended to, to, uh, to photography. And there's so many ways in which, in which, uh, subjects of photography can be can be turned into beautiful art that tells a story that may not be as objective uh, as objective a representation of the subject as uh, as is typical in landscape photography but you know maybe that's where you know all your post-production uh, dialing up on all the knobs is uh, is really a, a helpful part, you know, it can really contribute to, to making um, something, a, a dry scientific story more compelling to people. What about for you, Mason? Yeah. I mean, I, I think photography provides a way to make um, science and, and complex topics accessible to people. Um, you know, people like Greg spend their whole lives uh, learning all of the, the intricate details about how systems work and, most people don't have that time or the ability to sort of wrap their head around all these complex processes. And I feel like photography really provides a means to connect people with that and to, to 
communicate the science to a broader general public. Um, and, and, you know, that's obviously critical to, to, you know, create that lasting impact on the issues that we care about. Because if the scientists are doing the science and just keeping it to themselves in their small community of scientists, then what good is it if we're not communicating it out to the world and saying, hey, we've got problems here. We need to make changes. This is what's going on and this is what we need to do. Um, so I think photography provides a really critical um, sort of means of communicating that. Yeah. And I think, you know, on top of that, you know, I was recently in Death Valley for the first first time, which, you know, is just geologically speaking, it's just such a fascinating place. And I was trying to understand some of the things that I was stumbling across, like these massive, like four foot by four foot salt plates that were up on their side perpendicular. And I was like, what caused this? You know, and as you start thinking about, okay, so like all these salt gets washed down and then sits there and then evaporates. And then, when, you know, you start thinking about the scientific processes that are involved to create that landscape. Um, it just gets you even more excited, I think, as a photographer to try to convey that story um, in a way that's both beautiful and also interesting. So, and hopefully the end result is that the viewer is also becomes excited about trying to understand uh, science and scientific processes as well. So, and then I think that can lead to, you know, oh, maybe I should try to learn more about how that works. And, oh, there's a organization that's trying to protect this place or, you know, so I think, I think the parallels are just, they're everywhere for me anyway. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, Mason and Greg, this has been really fun. We got a photographer, a scientist, and a podcaster to all talk about really cool stuff. So I appreciate you guys taking taking the time out of your busy schedule to make this thing happen. Well, thank yeah, you. Thanks I've for enjoyed it and learned a lot. Yeah, thanks awesome. for having us on. And like I said, I don't get enough opportunities to work with Greg. So thanks for, for giving us this excuse, Matt. And uh, we're overdue to get out on an adventure together too. So that's right. Yeah, and maybe you guys can do some collaborating. Like, I really need photos of this. Get after it, Mason. (laughs) There you go. Well, thanks to both Mason and Greg for joining me on today's podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope you all did too. While I was editing this episode, I got really inspired and I just decided to stop what I was doing and donate to the Wilderness Society. I encourage you to do the same thing. I truly believe that the protection and expansion of wilderness is going to be one of the best paths forward for preserving the places we all love while improving the outlook on climate change impacts on our planet. Thanks to Greg and Mason for the awesome work that you're doing. Keep it up. If you too were inspired by this week's episode and value the podcast, please do consider supporting me and the show on Patreon. The best value is to contribute on an annual basis if you can. However, I know times are tough, and so if there's other ways you can help out, that would be great too. Even a simple share of this podcast episode on social media would be greatly appreciated. Okay, well that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.